Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 42 in our series for 2014. And today's date is Friday the 31st of October. Uh, And Leon, what have we got going this week? Well, Gary, we have a fascinating interview with a guy called Luke Jex from a company called Naked Wines, and he's going to be talking to us all about this crowdfunding model. It's just fascinating talking to him. Absolutely. He's, he's got, you know, really, I think he's got something like 30,000 angels, as he called them, uh, funding the this relationship he has with the small winemakers. Absolutely intriguing. So we'll be talking to him. And then, of course, we're going to have a chat with Sinclair Davidson about the dreaded question of GST, which is back on the table. Yes, indeed it is. And uh, Sinclair, as usual, has a really interesting angle on what it's going to, what's going to happen. Well, let's first of all talk to Luke Jex. Luke Jex, tell us about Naked Wines. Uh, well, Naked Wines is a uh, crowd-funded... Um, business that supports Australian winemakers um, and is in some ways a dating agency that connects those winemakers with uh, Australian wine drinkers. We're a purely online uh, company um, and uh, we currently have 24 winemakers being supported by approximately 30,000 angels who are our um, supporters or customers. So how exactly does it work? Well, the way it works is um, it's probably easier to start with um, why we do what we do. Um, we, we're in a market where uh, 77% of all wine sold in Australia is sold by Coles and Woolies. And when we by started... The, by the two major supermarkets. Yes, correct, correct. And um, when we started the company, you know, you, you, you think to yourself, um, oh, you know, we don't need to necessarily compete on price. If we knew that that's fool, you're fooling yourself, you, you have to compete on price as well. Um, and we looked at Coles and Woolies and we thought, well, we're never going to ever be able to compete with their market share. And even if we had their market share, would we want to use it the way they, they use it to get the prices that they get? Um, and so we kind of sat around with a conundrum and we said, well, actually, why don't we flip that? What if we were nice to winemakers? What would that look like? And what that looked like to us was, was, uh, that winemakers like chefs. Um, you know, every chef would like to own his own restaurant. Um, and every winemaker would like to do his own projects. And so we looked at it and said, if we were to help fund winemakers do their own projects, not only would we get a better quality of product um, from the winemaker, um, but it actually turns out that we'd get a, a cheaper cost of goods for that product as well because we wouldn't be pay- so we wouldn't be paying to be sold to. Um, and there'd be other costs and so forth along the way that could be stripped out. Um, the next conundrum for us was, okay, if that's the case, where would we get the capital from to support those winemakers and that's where we came up with, well, if customers um, shared the same aspirations as we did, that it was to get um, great wine from Australian winemakers, um, they may agree to uh, help us fund the winemakers. And that's where we're at. So our angels, our customers who support winemakers are called angels. They put $40 a month into their piggy bank. Um, that money is theirs to spend on anything on the site. So as soon as they arrive at the site, the $40 is there to shop with. They can use more than that if they want, but, you know, um, and that money um, empowers us uh, to go and um, invest in Australian winemakers. So with 30,000 angels at the moment, we're getting approximately 1 to 1.2 million a month in, in funds that we can invest um, ahead of time in, a, in, in the Australian wine industry. Um, and uh, in return, those angels are getting the benefits of better wine. And we also pass on this, this cost savings. They also pay a cheaper price 
um, than the general consumer. Luke, do you deal mostly with what we might call boutique wineries? Yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a, the, we, we probably deal less with wineries than we do with winemakers. Um, and you, you would class what is being made uh, through Naked Wines as boutique because it is not um, done in, in huge tanks and, you know, uh, it, it, with uh, in huge quantities. What we have here is smaller quantities of product that's been um, handcrafted by a caring winemaker. Um, but we have a range of winemakers. So we have winemakers who were undiscovered talent um, through to people like Daryl Groom, who is um, the ex-head red winemaker for Penfolds and made some of the most acclaimed, acclaimed vintages of Penfolds, uh, sorry, of um, Grange. How much cheaper do they get their wine for? Well, um, an angel will get a discount of somewhere between 25 and 50%, and the, diff, the, the reason I say somewhere is that it all depends on, on how much cheaper the production process is um, from us investing up front. So we basically pass that on. Um, but I think one of the really important points to make, though, is, is that um, you know, there's not a bottle of wine in the world that would cost more than $15 to make. So you know, to put that into perspective, if you spend $50 on a bottle of wine or you spend $150 on a bottle of wine, neither of those two bottles cost more than $15 to make. And that, because of that, we are able to actually bring very high-quality wines to the market, even if you're not an angel, and for it to be at a great price. And the way I can illustrate that is we know of a, uh, a Pinot Noir that we have on, on our site. Um, the, the, the juice that went into that um, is retailing in, another, in, a, in a branded bottle at um, around $90 a bottle um, on our site. Uh, it's been handcrafted by winemakers. Uh, we're selling it to non-angels at approximately 25 a bottle and to angels at $18 a bottle. So even non-angels are getting a great deal and a great uh, relationship between price and quality. So how does, uh, how do you, how does Naked Wines make its slice of these profits? Well, we, um, we're like any other business. Um, we sell, uh, we, we pay for the process. Um, we sell that to uh, our angels or our customers, um, and we make margin on that. The difference is is that we share um, the cost. Uh, sorry, the, the yeah, the cost benefit with those angels. So um, you know, when you're an angel, we share some of that margin with you, and you get it back as a cheaper price. So the forty dollars a month, um, the angels can spend as they you know, can accumulate that, and then spend up on what they see as being good value. Yeah, and um, yeah, we have it. It sort of works in, th- in thirds. A third of our angels, as soon as the forty dollars hits the account, they come straight on and shop. Um, another third wait three months until it's about one hundred and twenty dollars and close to the value of the case, and then they come and shop. And then there's another third of angels who sort of leave it and let it really accumulate, and then sh- and come and shop um, in big numbers. Um, and it's be- it's really because of the the bot the the, the second and, th- and third third. Um, that we're, we were able to have access uh, to funds that we can invest in winemakers. Uh, it's also important to point out, though, that the money remains the angels. If they cancel, there's no subscription, there's no fees, there's no minimum period. If you if you cancel, don't want to be an angel anymore, and you've got money in your account that you haven't used to buy wine with, you get it all back, um, no questions asked. So how, how do you see your competition in on, online, say, uh, Lathwaite's, for example, or Just Wines, are they they've got a different model? 
Yeah, there's um, there's really sort of uh, there's really three types of models. I used to say two, but now that we're here, there's three. Um, and the two that most people are, are familiar with is the model where you kind of um, it's the retail model that vertic- vertically integrates through the market and you know buys up um, vineyards and buys up production facilities and so forth and sort of sells their own brands to customers. So that's the Lathwaite's model. It's the model that Coles and Woolies are more are going down further and further. Their land grab is, is, you know, has reached as far as it can go. So now they're going back down the value chain to see where they can grab profit throughout the process. Um, and then the second type of model is the daily deal model. You know, where a product is in distress, distressed goods wasn't, you know, either a winemaker um, is going bust or, or um, the uh, tanks are full and it's new vintage and they've got to get rid of the wine they have. So that, that, that's a daily deal site where the discount that's being created is because of um, a distress in the goods rather than through a model. And then the third model, which is ours now, which is a virtuous circle um, where customers and winemakers collaborate together to, uh, for the benefit of both parties um, and, in our view, which is a more sustainable and authentic model. Now, how do you go about accumulating the angels? How did you do that? Yeah, it's a good question. We've done no... Um, above the line marketing at all. Um, about 30% of our customers come to us through word of mouth. It's a very viral business. So, you know, when somebody finds us, they kind of, uh, share it with their friends and, uh, we get a lot of, um, referred business. And then the other 70% of customers have just come through, um, partnerships with other businesses. Um, you know, we know that the best advertisement we have for our business is not the, you know, the name Naked, which is memorable and all of that. The, the best advertisement we have is the quality of the wine. And so what we aim to do is get wine in as many people's hands as we can. And we found that people who try the wine, 70% of them go on to be customers. So we have been able to work with other businesses who um, want to reward their customers or um, you know want to shift some behaviours in their customers, and they've used wine as a tool to do that. And what we found is through do, by doing that, we've got uh, those customers have gone on to become customers of us as well. So it's totally viral. Yeah, pretty much. That's exactly right. With, <laughs> it, sort of, it sort of uses communities uh, to, um, to grow itself. It's correct. So you wouldn't be doing any advertising at all? No, that's correct. Um, and we don't spend any money on advertising. And you've got 30,000 angels. Yeah. and about, uh, So we've got about 30,000 angels and another 30,000 customers. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's an impressive model, Luke, and it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for your time, guys. Thank you. Yeah, I really like the idea. You know, you, you, know, you, you sign up, you give them 40 bucks a month, and you have first dibs on all of these boutique wines, uh, and it's, it's really, in a sense, saving the Australian wine industry. Well, it's, actually, it's good for small winemakers because, of course, they can't get their wines onto the shelves at places like Dan Murphy's and Vintage Cellars, which are you know, basically wine sales are controlled by the supermarkets. Yeah, that's right. And, and of course, they're not squeezed by the supermarkets on price. Uh, you know, they haven't got the volume to interest the supermarkets, but the it really interests the wine buffs in the country. Absolutely. So it's fascinating, fascinating chatting to him. Now, this week, of course, Tony Abbott put the GST on the table, Gary, and uh, we're looking at the prospect of an increase in the GST. So let's have a chat with Sinclair Davidson about it. Sinclair Davidson, Tony Abbott has put the GST back on the table. What's your view about this? 
I think this is a, a very interesting development. It, of course, comes after before the last election, he was saying there were going to be no changes to the GST full stop. Well, that, that certainly is, is, is looking a bit of a broken promise, although my understanding is that he's going to take this to the next election to have a look at. I think there's going to be lots of fireworks, lots of fun. Um, he said he wants a mature debate around tax re- policy, unlike what we've had in the last few years. And of course, uh, the Labour gov- uh, opposition are saying, well, when they were in government, the person who was making sure we didn't have a mature debate was Tony Abbott himself. So I think there's going to be a lot of grandstanding, a lot of payback, a lot of uh, um, excitement. The real issue is what's going to happen on the GST. And I think that's really going to be how well the government sells their story. Should there be an increase? Do we need an increase in the GST? Well, this morning in the Financial Review, um, I I think it might have been Chris Richardson, someone was quoted as actually saying that the economics of it are very straightforward, the politics are diabolical. I think the the politics of it being diabolical is a design feature and not a bug. When the Howard government set up the GST, they actually put it in place to make it very difficult to change because one of the big criticisms of of, uh, consumption taxes like the GST, of course, is that the rates keep on rising. The Australian rate at 10% has been remarkably stable since 2000 when it first came in. So it was actually designed to not change. So should it change? Well, this really depends on what the government is going to do with the revenue. Now, if you cast your minds back to 2000, the federal government was running a surplus. They didn't need the money. They undertook a genuine tax reform where GST revenue would replace inefficient state taxes. I think the GST, when it came in in 2000, was a very good reform. I I didn't necessarily think that at the time, but certainly over time, I've come to think that it was a very, very good reform. What the government are proposing now is that the GST will be increased by some amount and that the money will then be earmarked for hospital spending. I'm not sure that that is a good reform. Right now, we're in a position where the government needs money. They need new revenue. So any increases or changes to the tax system are revenue grabs. I think the best tax reforms occur when we don't need the revenue, when we can actually tinker without saying what is best to do with this money, how best to design our tax system, as opposed to, oh my God, we need money, let's raise a tax somewhere or the other. Should the GST be raised? It depends on what's been done with the money. I would be looking at replacing the payroll taxes in the state government level. At the same time, business groups are saying we need a much broader analysis of the tax issues as well. Not GST is only part of the issue. We need to we need to take a look at the overall system itself. What's your view about that? Um, I think well, on, on the one hand, I, I think, of course, they're quite correct. But again, in the last 10 years, we had the Warburton um, Henry Review. We had the Henry Review. We're going in for our third tax review in under 10 years. Um, I think this is getting a bit much. Uh, what has happened in the last two tax reviews, of course, the GST was off the off, uh, off the table. Now the Prime Minister is saying the GST is on the table. I mean, is the GST going to be making so much of a difference around the tax system that we've, uh, the two tax reviews that we've had? I mean, is the GST the, the real difference? And I don't think so. I I think what we're looking at is a general dissatisfaction around public finances. And part of that general dissatisfaction, of course, is governments are spending more than what they're raising in revenue. Now, 
the solution to that problem is always to spend less, to live within your means, not to actually grow your tax system to meet your your spending needs, but actually to make sure your spending falls within the within the ambit of how much revenue we can raise. Because even though the tax revenue percent of GDP is looking low, tax revenues in dollar terms are at all time highs. So if the issue is a revenue issue, shouldn't you be looking at ways of raising more revenue? We raise a lot of revenue as it is right now. The Where Australia does differ from other economies is our very heavy reliance on direct taxation. So the income tax at a personal level and the corporate level raises a lot more of the overall tax revenue in Australia than it does in other economies that rely more on indirect taxes or consumption taxes. Now, the advantage of that is, of course, the transparency. We, we feel it when, when the government is raising revenue to spend, we actually feel it because it's coming out of our pay packets. We see it directly, whereas in other economies, we don't see it uh, uh, quite that much. So are we going to trade off some transparency for greater levels of, of revenue to the government? I, I, I don't know that if, if that's necessarily a good idea. That argument hasn't been made. But certainly I think um, what are we going to do with revenues? Why do we need those revenues? The argument right now is, well, we've got an aging population. We have to spend more on health and, and those sorts of things. Well, okay, we do. But give the money to the states because they have primary uh, responsibility for health. Give the money to the states and let them make decisions how best to spend that money. And, of course, we need to grow our economy. This is the real problem that we've got is that we not our economy is not performing as well as it should. So, therefore, it's not generating the tax revenue as much as the government would like. So we have to look at the overall economic picture first. Yes, yes we do. We do. It's the, the, if, if you listen to the Reserve Bank talking over the last while, they've been complaining about a lack of animal spirits. Now, I've never been convinced that animal spirits are a good thing. Lord Keynes never said animal spirits are a good thing. So the, the Reserve Bank are saying, well, where are the animal spirits? Well, the animal spirits are being restrained because people are afraid about our taxes going to rise in future. Why would you invest now if you know the government's going to take a bigger slice next time? So governments need to create some certainty around tax policy. They also need to cut their spending. We have this massive crowding out that's going on. So... When the Reserve Bank says, you know, people aren't spending uh, or aren't, aren't investing and Mr. Hockey says, well, you know, monetary policy has run its race, I'm looking at that thinking, oh, gee, you know, this is becoming an excuse for more government intervention in the economy, which is exactly the opposite of what we really need. Make space for the private sector to grow. The economy will grow. Our tax system design is very good. It will raise revenue as the economy expands. And that is the way to, for, for governments to get revenues to expand the economy and actually take a slice out of a growing economy, not take a bigger slice out of a fairly flat economy. But you could also, I mean, the federal government could get rid of their health department, doesn't do anything, education department. It wouldn't cover the, the money it needs, but it would certainly be an economy and there must be others like it. There, there, there are lots of economies out there. The, the, the duplication at the state and, go, at, and, and go, at federal government level is, is phenomenal. Mr. Abbott has been making some good noises around that in the last few days, but whether or not they would actually chop uh, federal government departments, education um, and health, for example, that don't employ a single doctor, a single nurse, a single school teacher would be an open question. The other thing, of course, is uh, we've seen in Western Australia, they, they keep on coming out east with their begging bowls saying we need more GST revenue. Well, we've just discovered they've got a department, uh, Healthway or Health Services, whatever it is, who's giving money to operas and shutting down Carmen and all these sorts of things. Well, 
So, well, surely they can cut that before they start coming out east and saying we need more GST money. So I think governments need to have a long, hard look at themselves before they go back to the taxpayer trying to get more money. And not including cultural health as well. Yes, yes. Are the states in a position to actually manage the GST? The rhetoric around the GST and the reality is actually very different. The... The, the rhetoric is that the states have to agree to change the GST revenues, when in actual fact they don't have to. What the, what the states are in, a, are in the problem where they have far more spending than what they actually have revenue sources. So the states actually need the money because they have to spend money in health and education, which they don't actually have the revenues for. Um, they can't run excise taxes in Australia under our constitution. So unlike the Americans where they can have a, a state-based GST, we can't do that here in Australia. So we have to have a federal-level GST. The states then are in the position whereby they are left with all the, the inefficient taxes, the bad taxes, and I include payroll tax. It, it, it is a tax on jobs. A lot of economists will say, no, it isn't. A payroll tax is a tax on jobs, and where you see the highest payroll taxes are in states like South Australia and Tasmania, where, of course, they're in trouble on, on an employment sense. So those guys need to be in a position whereby they could cut their payroll taxes now, I, if I were them, I'd be going to Abbott and saying, give us more GST revenue and we will cut our payroll taxes, but don't earmark it onto things that the federal government thinks money should be spent on because the states have a better idea of what they need to spend money on. And Tasmania and South Australia need to be in a position of promoting jobs, and that means cutting payroll taxes in those states. Now, you mentioned, you, you said that this will be the third review in so many years. The history of the other reviews has not been good. No, it hasn't at all. The the um, the, the Henry review, of course, unfortunately was was badly managed from 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 the very very beginning. Just in terms of of appointing Ken Henry, who may well, I mean, he may be the the best person for the job, but of course he was the the Treasury Secretary at the time, so wholly inappropriate appointment there. Uh, the Warburton Henry review again, it it. it it's people just weren't very satisfied with with all of those reviews because I think um, taking the GST out of it, it wasn't a, a root and branch review. Um, the Henry review was sort of too ideological and sort of trying th- theoretical concepts and ideas trying to drive it all. I think we need to have a review where we start off by actually saying we've actually got a pretty good tax system. The tax system is there to to sort of facilitate spending. But we need to have a symbiotic relationship between taxation and the economy and not a parasitic relationship between taxation and the economy. And we need to decide in advance what a good tax review will look like and then do it as opposed to having more uh, sort of a, a partisan ideological approach to doing these things. And you're saying that is the approach that needs to be taken now? Well, to the extent that we need another tax review, going into a white paper process, I suppose we are going to have some sort of review. Um, but yes, we, we need to start off by saying we've actually got a good – the, the design features of our tax system are pretty good. And I think the other thing that would be very valuable would be a good education campaign around what our tax system is, how it works, what it should be doing, because there's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding around what taxation is and how it works in the community. So to, to get community acceptance of, of of any reforms in our tax system, we have to understanding what it is. 
Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, what do you think, Leon? I think uh, Sinclair's probably pretty right. I think he is. I think he is. But we've got a very long way to go, is what he's indicating. And now the news, Leon. Well, some worrying news around the world, Gary. For a start, in China, the world's second biggest economy, consumer sentiment hit a three-year low. Consumers have downgraded their views on employment, the housing market and their personal finance, according to a private survey. The Westpac MNI China Consumer Sentiment Indicator tumbled by 2% in October to 110.9, just a fraction above the all-time low of 1108 in September 2011, and the World Bank is saying China now faces an economic growth target of only 7%. That's down from 7.5% this year in 2015. Yeah, and the longer-term projection is that, that they're going to come back to about 4 or 5%. Well, that's right. According to the conference board that we talked about last week, they were saying 4 or 5% by 2020. So it's something to watch out for, Gary. Yep. Well, it's only five years ahead, isn't it, really? Worrying news uh, out of the Europe too. Uh, one in five European banks have failed crucial tests of their financial strength, leaving a 25 billion euro or 19.6 billion dollar capital hole in the continent's banking system at a time of renewed fears that the five-year-long eurozone crisis may be flaring up again, and European banking regulations published the results on Sunday and the findings put particular focus on Italian banks. Nine banks in Italy failed. In Greece, three banks failed. That That's Ireland's uh, permanent TSB failed. The world's oldest bank, Italy's Banca Monte del Pasha di Siena, was left with a shortfall of more than 2 billion euro to fill in the coming nine months. And uh, they tested 123 banks, including the bailed out Lloyds Banking Group and the Royal Bank of Scotland. Yeah, you can see why the NAB wants to get out of the Clydesdale Bank. Absolutely. The NAB is now selling its uh, its UK business. And exactly, and they're outlining that now. Yeah, the trick might be to find a buyer. And at the same time, lending to the Eurozone's private sector remained level below levels from a year ago, suggesting the economy remains hampered by a lack of new credit and spending. Lending to households and businesses was down 1.2% last month compared with September 2013, according to the European Central Bank's report. And some interesting stuff about the price of oil, Gary. Goldman Sachs is forecasting the Brent crude could drop to about $80 a barrel next year. And the fall in oil prices has accelerated in recent weeks with supplies in abundance as losing OPEC members resisted calls to cut production. And the US in the midst of a shale oil boom is producing the fastest rate in almost three decades. Russian output is close to a post-Soviet record. Goldman expects production to increase in Brazil and the Gulf of Mexico. Now, so you've got all this surplus of oil, so prices are coming down. But at the same time, it's the problem is that doubts are rising about economic growth. We have lower economic growth. People are using less oil, and the International Monetary Fund cut its growth forecast for 2015 early this month. Yeah, and, and long term, you've got all sorts of factors, like, for example, in Melbourne, you've got people moving out of the far distant suburbs and into the central city. That's right, that's right. So, you know, because they can't afford it. That is something to watch out for. Now, at the same time, in Australia, Prime Minister Tony Abbott has opened the doors to a radical tax misshift that would increase the cloud of the states at the cost of Canberra. The comments clear the way for a debate about an increase in the goods and services tax, which is at the moment 10% collected by Canberra, put paid to the state, at, and they will look, be looking at that as a platform at the next federal election. Yeah, I, the hip pocket nerve is alive and well and very sensitive. Well, the coalition has ruled out increased GST. At the same time... Um, the states have rejected any ownership of the proposal. 
Uh, Labor slammed it as a broken election promise. Tasmanian Premier Will Hodgman welcomes the national debate on Federation but won't support any change in the GST rate or base. Queensland Premier Campbell Newman says looking at the tax side of the equation is wrong and he says the important thing is for governments to stop wasting money they already collect from taxpayers. I mean that is that an economist is saying that's okay but they're saying that he, the Prime Minister has to compensate lower middle income earners with tax cuts. And that would hit an already ravaged budget. The issue, Gary, I mean, why are they looking at GST? Because Tony Abbott is determined to go to the next election with tax cuts in mind. And having a higher GST will open the way for tax cuts. It's the only way to do it. Yeah, consumption taxes are sort of semi-hidden taxes. You get used to the, the pound of butter costing a little bit more. I guess it's right. He'll take a kicking if he does put the GST up, but that'll be over by the time the election comes around. That's right, which was which was made our conversation with Sinclair really fascinating. Now, at the same time, the federal government has found a way around the Senate's blockage of its plan to reintroduce full fuel tax, fuel excise indexation. And Finance Minister Matthias Cormann announced they're tabling tariff proposals in the House of Representatives and the rate of fuel duty will increase from 38.143 cents per litre to 38.6 cents per litre from the November the 10th. It, it's not a huge change though is it Leon? It, it's, I mean it's, it's less than the swings and swings up and down of the petrol price at the pump. Yes but well they're saying it's going to cost uh, the average family about 40 cents. <laughs> 40 cents a week extra. Except the poor people, it'll cost more because they travel more, Mr. Hockey. That's right, indeed, indeed. But it will add an extra $2.2 billion to government coffers. So it's coming out, but somewhere we've got to, the government's got to get money. The, the community's got to get money for services. Well, the government's looking at... I mean, this proposal's going to add about $19 billion over a decade. Now, Clive Palmer has given the thumbs down to the federal government's paid parental leave scheme. The government was to spend $22 billion on the scheme funded by a levy on big companies, and Palmer says the, company should, the government should instead spend its money on childcare. But the federal government's $2.5 billion direct action climate policy is going to pass the Senate after the government struck a deal with Clive Palmer. And that was after Clive Palmer said it was all a waste of money. The PUP uh, plus um, Nick Xenophon in, in Adelaide, right. they've all done deals. That's right. Now, Australians are becoming more upbeat about the economy as worries about the federal budget fade, share market rallies. The ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index rose 2.7% last week, hitting its highest level in 12 weeks. And expectations about the economic level, economic outlook had a 12% bounce after being of subdued levels, subdued levels following the harsh federal budget in May. The other interesting news is that uh, Rupert Murdoch's News Corp is targeting the $1.85 trillion superannuation pool, Gary. He's doing it through Eureka Report. And so uh, News Corp Australian investment publication Eureka Report will establish a platform that will allow people to administer their super funds. And the product will be called Bright Day. It's being developed by James Laplore, the general manager of Eureka Report, and it will be launched in, in December. So you, Rupert Murdoch is targeting Australia's giant superannuation pool, which is one of the biggest in the world. Yeah. And of course, he's got to attract people to the fund. I mean, it's all very well to to put up your store, your lemon juice store, but uh, you've got to get people to come and buy. Now, um, the corporate cop, uh, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, has made a fresh bid for new powers to obtain intercepted telecommunications information. And it's saying the national broadband network rollout is going to render some traditional sources of intelligence of very little use. And it's told politicians it wants to get intercepted information from law enforcement agencies like the Australian Federal Police and expanded search warrant powers. And it says market misconduct is generally done via the phone or SMS text rather than being documented in writing. Now, 
ASIC isn't pushing to do the intercepts itself. It wants to be able to get the information from the law enforcement agencies, Gary. The federal, the Murray Inquiry, the Federal Service Inquiry, is going to recommend that banks hold billions of dollars more to protect against future financial shocks. So the banks are in for some financial pain, Gary. Well, uh, I'm not crying. No, no. Now, it will reportedly opt out against a push to place a fee on government's free deposit guarantee, and it won't urge a coalition to force an unravelling of the bank's vertical integration of funds management, superannuation, financial advice. But uh, it wants to. Um, what it wants to do is uh, make sure that they hold more capital. Yeah, well, this has been on the cards for quite a while, though, hasn't it? Now, that report is coming out in November, next month. Now, uh, according to the Ernst & Young um, Biennial Australasia Capital Confidence Barometer, they found Australian firms are increasingly on the lookout for acquisitions with takeover confidence touching a four-year high, which is good. So, you know, we haven't seen anything like that since the, uh, since the global financial crisis. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, I guess we're digging ourselves out of the hole, finally. That's right. They found the number of companies seeking an acquisition has climbed from 32% six months ago to 66% today. So more than doubled. And that's good because there's there's plenty of money out there. The trouble is it's not going anywhere, not doing anything. And also the, the, the other issue too is that uh, the perpetually postponed uh, East Coast uh, high-speed rail link could cost around half the previous estimate, according to a new study. The Australasian Railway Association has released a report that says a comparison of international construction costs indicates a rail line between Brisbane and Melbourne could be built for $35 million a kilometre, and that gives a price tag of $63 billion. Now, that's a lot below than the $114 billion they initially estimated last year. How are they, they going to do it? Just Well, that's according to the latest report. You know, there's a lot of money to spend when we don't have much. No, but the rail line between uh, Melbourne and Brisbane would be fantastic. Ah, enormously important for the economy. And anyway, that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. It's great. And uh, we'll be back next week. That's right. Next week, we've got an interview with Joe Caprio. He's the sales director of Boston-based business intelligence firm Insight Squared. Ah, yes. Now, he's a very interesting man. So don't forget, tune in next week. That's right. And uh, we'll bring you uh, Talking Business. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at Talking Biz, B-I-Z-Z, or on Facebook. Until then, stay safe and we'll be back next week.